Chapter twenty three of the Milky Way. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Milky Way by F. Tennyson Jesse. Chapter twenty three. The Odds and Ends. As I sat beside William that night in the panelled dining room at Boscarn, I realized that I should have to do something pretty violent to shock him out of his feeling for me. Merely to go away in a noble self-sacrificing manner would be to have him after me. The unpleasant task must be mine of shocking his amour propre into kisses-keeping. I looked about me at the portraits, mediocre in themselves, valuable to the Penroses as relics of their kin, at the old silver on which the candlelight sparkled, at Kissa, looking so absolutely right in her Romney muslin frock and blue sash, with pearls in her soft hair. And I realized that the spell which had been on me, drawing me to this kind of life, had lost its grip. Do spells have a grip, I wonder? I have always pictured them as long, waving whitenesses, with sinuous fingers, wreathing out of a cauldron, or off a fairy ring on a hillside. I want you to come and see the orchids with me before everyone begins to arrive, murmured William in my ear after dinner. Why not, he added, as I shook my head. I explained I hated sitting round in conservatories and that sort of thing. A pleased and somewhat fatuous smile dawned on his face. I'm so glad nothing has spoiled you, Viv, he said. Many girls leading your life. He paused. Well, what, said I, on the defensive? Well, wouldn't be so particular about the kind of thing you mean. Of course you must meet cads who'd like to sit out in conservatories with you, and who wouldn't mean anything except to flirt with you. But you know I don't mean. I've never come across the kind of person you mention, I flared, forgetting in my temper that I was saying the wrong thing for the role I meant to adopt. I'm not the sort of girl who gets kissed in conservatories. Darling, I beg your pardon. It slipped out. But I mean it. I know you're not. That's just what I'm saying. That sort of life hasn't touched you. There's nothing about you a man wouldn't want in his wife. Viv, I must tell you that. William, your tie is crooked, and it gives you such a squiffy appearance, I interrupted. A look of pain at my tactlessness and the slangy expression I used crossed his face, but his hand flew to his tie and his gaze to a mirror, and I slipped away. Soon after, all the world began to arrive and I attached myself to Evadne and Ted, till William, as master of the ceremonies, drove us all on to the lawn, on which rows of chairs were arranged, and across the far end of which a pair of curtains hung. I saw glad eyes amongst the audience, evidently in the mood of girlish modesty she assumed with her clothes, for she was in one of those light half-hearted frocks, that are neither high nor low, neither bond nor free. I don't mean that Gladeyes was immodest when out of her garments. She wasn't. 
only she couldn't be natural about it, any more than I thought she could be about anything else, in which last supposition I proved wrong. I noticed she was placed at the back with the servants, a position I feared she would find insulting. But there again I was wrong. She was happier when able to imagine people asking, who was that wonderfully elegant girl, than she would have been had she looked out of place in not such a pleasing manner among her superiors. I found myself sat down beside William, in the unenviable publicity of the front row, and whispered, what's going to happen? It's a troupe of performers who've just come down to Penzance, whispered William back again. They've made rather a hit at Falmouth. They call themselves the Odds and Ends. Behind the curtains someone tuned a fiddle, and then began to play, a light lilting thing I had never heard before. The curtains rattled asunder, and there was presented to our gaze, against a background of trees, and illuminated by fairy lights and Chinese lanterns hanging from the boughs, and a row of footlights in front, the company of the odds and ends. After the first moment of incredulity, I only saw the one who was playing the fiddle, and he was Peter. He looked straight at me from under the pale locks matted over his browner forehead and fair flaunting eyebrows. He was dressed as to the upper part in fleshings, a trail of ivy being as a concession to the feelings of the audience, artfully disposed across his chest. From the waist downwards he had achieved a triumph in goatskin breeches, and his hoofs were miracles of cardboard. His ears, always crested at the tip, were added to by spirals of wax, and he wagged them at me in time to the music, in a way he knew I detested. Then he stepped forward and made a little speech. Ladies and gentlemen, he said, allow me to present to you, as their spokesman, the company of odds and ends. We are the leftovers of the world relics of the time of the great god Pan, obliged to exploit ourselves for a living. I am, as you see, a fawn. Here is the last of the mermaids in the watertight pram. The pram was a tank on wheels, over one end of which drooped the sea lady's tail, while at the other appeared her pale face and weed-bound hair, the face and hair of Chloe. She looked lovely in a sleek, half-drowned way suitable to her role, though very different from her usual type. Here, continued Peter, is a troubadour who will sing old minstrel songs to you. And here is our centaur, whose name is Algernon Lackward. This is not, as you might suppose, one of the players from Chanticleer, but the phoenix rising from the ashes of a misspent life. This India-rubbery-looking individual is a changeling, while the last of all is the original black cat belonging to the Witch of Endor. I must apologize for the absence of our dryad, but she missed the train at Falmouth. 
I hope she caught a later one, and will be here in time to give a dance. By now I had pulled myself together a trifle, and recognized the changeling, an easy task, for she was attired in dark tights as she was wont to be at Haggett's, though a skullcap rather like a harlequin's was fitted over her head. In the troubadour, in spite of a long red wig, I recognized to my intense surprise Edgar Murdoch. I was at a loss to identify the centaur, who was constructed in the best pantomime manner of two individuals who formed his front and his back half respectively. In the phoenix, a bunchy kind of bird covered with bronze feathers and reposing apparently asleep in a wickerwork nest, I, to my horror, recognized Little John. Luckily the night was warm, and she appeared to be sleeping through the proceedings with her usual sang-froid. The witch of Endor's cat was, of course, the Nelephant. I wondered very much whom the dryad Peter had referred to might be. His little speech concluded, he bowed and retreated, and the performance began. The centaur's jig was a marvel of ingenuity. To see his fore and his hind legs setting to each other as to partners was very pleasant. After that, being a centaur of literally many parts, he picked up the violin and began to play. I recognized the air at once. It was Bruneau's setting of Catul Mandez's exquisite song, Le Roe Vagabond, and Peter stepped forward to sing it. In his sweet, though not very powerful, baritone, the gay, pathetic words fell on my ears with added meaning and I buried my fingers in my bunch of roses. Je m'en vais par les chemins, Roland, sang Peter, and I thought of how I had purposed leaving him to tramp along those roads without me, who had called myself his friend. J'ai dans mon cœur fleuri, chante rossignol, chante si j'ai dans mon cœur joli, l'irali, ma mia. I felt the old lilt waking in my blood. I raised my head and met Peter's eyes. He flung back his head triumphantly as he drew to the end of the song, when the vagabond, robbed of his toise coup and with no more bread, still sings that J'ai dans mon cœur pleurant, chante un rossignol, chante en soupirant, J'ai dans mon cœur mourant, lira la mamia. Oh, what a mistake I had been on the point of making! To imagine I could ever settle down to be audience, like these well-fed people round me, who applauded in a patronizing way. I felt doubly an impostor as I sat there, for I knew I was on the wrong side of the footlights. I heard Peter speaking again. He had a telegram in his hand. I am sorry to say this is from the Dryad, announcing that the train, when she did catch it, took her to the wrong place. Is there any Dryad in disguise among the audience who would be kind enough to give us a dance instead? I stood up, and William's hand flew to my arm. Viv, Viv, sit down. What are you doing? 
he whispered. It's no good, William. Let me go. You can't stop me. I must go. And I slipped from his irresolute grasp and threw the curtains. There Peter was waiting me. Do you want to break away, Viv? he asked. If not, say the word and I'll go. But I couldn't help thinking it might be a case of saving your soul alive. It is? Come and do a fawn and nymph dance with me. Those slippers won't do. I kicked them off and threw my silk stockings after them, and the next moment I was dancing on to the grassy stage. After the first few moments I ceased to see William's hurt and angry face, and forgot everything except that I was a dryad again, free and uncaught, dancing for joy of the cool grass against my bare toes. Then, at sound of questing hoof, I darted behind a tree, and Peter pranced on, and panpipes to his mouth began to play cunningly. I peeped round my tree, put out a foot, hesitated, finally fell under the spell of the music and danced into the open. Wilder and wilder grew the music, more and more it urged the dryad, till her almost exhausted breath beat in her throat like a bird and she sank on the turf. The fawn sprang forward and scattered red roses over her, then swept her up into his arms and ran towards the trees. In a moment I was myself again, and breaking free I ran off and away. On and on with my frock turned up over my shoulders like a cape I ran, through the gate at the end of the plantation, across a strip of moorland, where I splashed into little pools, not slowing down till I was in the carn. I still broke into little runs, crushing the slippery, brittle toadstools, and sinking into the drifts of dead leaves that made a noise like surf as I plunged through them. The moon shining through the branches flung a net of shadows over the floor of the wood, and the gleams of light ran up over and over me as I went like the ripples of a tide. Not until I was out on the rutted track leading to the manor did I feel tired, and then I knew my feet hurt me, and that I wanted to lie down, and I went to bed as I was and slept soundly. The sun was just rising when I woke and went downstairs to the hall. A fire was burning on the hearth, and by it sat Peter, still in fawn's attire. "'I do want some breakfast, don't you?' he said. "'I did.' "'Come and I'll show you where to draw water,' I replied, and I led the way to the well. "'The water's full of black slugs with yellow frills,' I explained, "'so you must be careful not to let them get into the kettle.' as they're apt to stick in the spout, which they fit as a banana does its skin. We filled the kettle, and then, girdling my gown round my hips with the silver cord, I took the pail from the well and bore it to a field nearby. There, with many blandishments, I approached a cow, and inserting myself and my pail beneath her, proceeded to steal her milk. I knew where a hen from a neighbouring farm was laying astray, 
and I went to her hedge-hidden haunt and drew out three warm brown eggs. A large forlorn mushroom I found on my way back was added to the other provisions, and then Peter and I had the best breakfast ever eaten, all cooked in relays in an old kettle without a lid. When we had finished we broke our eggshells so as to harbour no evil spirits, and emptied the remains of the milk over my ancestral threshold as a libation to the gods. And I told him all about everything, and as nearly as was possible for a man, he understood. We can catch the early train from Penzance if we can find something to drive us in, he said, pulling the watch out of the recesses of his goatskin. I told the others to wait for us on the platform. Tell me, Peter, why didn't you write? Because I saw a chance of coming down here just when your engagement with the Culvers was up. I didn't think of your engagement with anyone else being on, he added slyly. And who are the others? I saw Chloe and the Changeling, and Edgar Murdoch and Littlejohn, who had no business to be up so late. It was such a mild night. The centaur was Joe and her young man. What young man? This is something new. Peter, is it serious? How thrilled I am. Very serious. His name is Charles G. Chetwind, and they're engaged. What's he? Oh, a sort of man about town, but a ripping good chap. We call him the man about, for short. Joe calls him Chaz. She's training him. So I should imagine. Which half was he? Front, I suppose, or I should have recognized Joe's face. Yes, and he said it augured well for their married life, that he should be the head. But Joe said that, to use a very vulgar expression, it showed that she would wear the breeches. Peter, I said thoughtfully, who was the dryad who missed the train at Falmouth? Oh, replied Peter with a grin. She was in the nature of a decoy duck. Her name, I should fancy, would be Mrs. Harris. Now I think you'd better begin to get ready. I wrote a note to William and his mother, and another to Evadne, left my borrowed plumes on the bed, threw my own belongings into a bag, and then went down again to the hall where I paused to say farewell to the pearly lady. Then we went to the neighbouring farm, caught the pony and led it into the yard, where the farm dog came cringing out to us with wagging tail but curled back lip. There was no one about, apparently everyone was busy with the cows, so we put in the pony, chalked a message on the door of the cart shed, and drove off through the fragrance of the early morning. To Penzance. Along the quay we went, where hundreds of little pointed waves, sparkling in the sun, rose and fell incessantly, each always in the same place, so that the little boats nudged each other and ripples of light flickered over their white-painted sides. We found a boy to whom we confided the return of the pony and cart, 
and at a little cottage bought a big bunch of dew-wet roses as a farewell present for the farmer's wife. Then Peter and I ran on to the station. J'ai don mon coeur fleuri, chante rossignol, chante si joli, j'ai don mon coeur joli, lirely, ma mia, hummed Peter, and hand in hand we went to the tune of it. End of chapter 23